FIA welcomes you to The Art Parlor, where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring your beverage of choice, and listen to thoughtful, stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now, here's your host, Ann Chiapetta. Welcome, everybody, to, uh, to The Art Parlor Show. Uh, my name is Annie Chiapetta. Um, I'm on the board of Friends in Art, and I'm your Zoom host uh, this evening. Before we start and introduce Harvey Miller, our guest, I just want to go over some housekeeping. Uh, so if everybody could mute themselves, uh, besides Harvey and Nancy and myself, that would be great. All right, Nancy, take it away. It's my honor and my privilege to be the interviewer of Harvey Miller today. And welcome to the art parlor, Harvey. We're so glad that you have agreed to come and talk with us. Well, thank you. Thank you. Now, I had thought for a time that you were a charter member of Friends in Art, but you told me that you joined us in 1987. That's right. 87. And wow. Los Angeles. What a versatile member. What? In Los Angeles? Yes. All right. And what a versatile member you've been for us. Uh, a singer extraordinaire doing opera and folk songs and playing Chopin preludes and I don't know what all else on the piano and accompanying yourself with the guitar and directing the chorus and singing tenor, thank goodness, in our chorus when we've had it. And tuning the doggone pianos for us when we <laughs> when we Gee, uh, I'm tired already <laughs> <laughs> well anyway helping us in so many ways when I first met you I sang in a chorus in which you you directed us and we did uh, no business like show business and we did a I don't know, spiritual met. Yeah, they were uh, corner spirituals that were called, arranged by Alice Parker. Yeah. And they were nice pieces, really, I thought. But it was sort of interesting the way I had to put that together because we had to have Braille copies for everyone. And what I did was get a fellow faculty member to dictate all the parts. And then she sang all the parts for a recording that, we sent out so and i'm guessing that when you directed your choruses in college i mean you had to print music but i guess you had to have somebody how did you get your music to do that if if it were wasn't available in braille you had to get people you had to go through that routine for yourself yeah, right i had to uh, get someone to play it for me and uh, sometimes i got braille copies but that was very rare for example, I did Messiah one year, and that I could get a copy for. And so I used, actually, what I did was use the alto part, because then I could get the right uh, uh, cues, the uh, letters that, you know, chorus go to letter so-and-so, things of that sort. And uh, it worked out pretty well. You could conduct well, with one hand and feel the braille with the other. Wow. But most of the time, I memorized it and just did it by memory. So. Well, tell us a little bit about how you got into conducting. 
Oh, the uh, chairman of the music department here was also the choir director and organist at the local Methodist church. And he wanted a junior choir. So he said, Harvey, you're going to be conducting the junior choir. <clears throat> uh, not that I, he asked me, he said, you are going to be doing it. So we had about 40 kids. And so I divided them up. We had two choirs and they sang once a month for the church service. And that's how I got into it. And then the chairman went back to school and said, uh, Harvey, you're going to take over the choral group to college. So I did. And that's how I got started. So I stayed in that position when he came back. Yeah. I want us to explore some more about the different kinds of things that you did as an instructor there at Brevard College. But first of all, did you go to the School for the Blind in North Carolina? I did, yes. I uh, went there when I was 10 years old. I started in public school and about the third, well, late, I guess, after the second grade, my folks noticed that I was uh, not seeing as well as I should be. So, of course, we went off to the doctor and I got glasses and went back to school for the third grade and then dropped out at the, around Christmas time. And I was out of school for a year and a half going to, oh, wow. to doctors and getting, trying to figure out what was causing the visual problem, which they never figured out. Uh, they just called it chorioretinitis. And uh, then at uh, age 10, I went to the school for the blind and went to the irregular grade, if you remember that. We called it high kindergarten and learned how to read Braille at that point, and then went into the third grade to finish out the year. Wow. Now, I know you play so many different instruments. So what instruments did you learn there at the School for the Blind? Well, actually, I started piano when I was in the second grade, you know, uh, with sighted music <laughs> or music that uh, you had to read with the eyes. And uh, I had to stop that while I was out of school because I couldn't see the music anymore. And so I studied voice for about a year. That was when I was eight, nine years old. And uh, then I started studying voice when I went to the school for the blind. also started violin and continued piano. So. And, and then what? You learned Braille music when you went? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. I, I guess it was the uh, piano teacher that uh, got me started in Braille music. It was a class piano type thing. And uh, we had three piano teachers at the School for the Blind, the beginning, middle, and then advanced piano teachers. I, I think they all could have taught, you know, all of those, <laughs> but uh, they were all good. Anyway, we had, I think, four people in the f class I started in in piano. And we had some of those keyboards, you know, that were sort of simulated keyboards that you had to sit and play while everyone else played the piano. But anyway, it was uh, interesting. And at the end of that, I guess it was maybe my second year there, I did a graduating recital going to the middle's piano teacher. Well, like a solo recital? Yes, yes. Mm. Well... When you went from the School for the Blind, you went, what, to Chapel Hill, to the University of North Carolina? That's right, yes. Mm -hmm. 
And, and majored in, I majored in piano there. Uh-huh. And, and I then, studied voice and piano, though. So Yeah, but, but you didn't follow up on your violin there. Uh, well, I only took one semester, and it was a little bit too much in college to, you know, to try to keep up with voice and piano and violin. So uh, well, I just did it one semester. How did you come to get the Brevard gig? Oh, it was sort of interesting. Actually, it's, I guess, who you know. But, you know, I finished my master's degree at Chapel Hill, and I started going to the employment office there. They had all kinds of uh, job openings that they listed. And so I started writing letters and getting sort of frustrated. And so I found out that the president of Brevard College had been my minister when I was in high school. It's a Methodist school, so he was a Methodist minister. And so I thought, well, I'll just write him and see if he knows of any job openings. And he wrote back and said, why don't you come up for an interview? So we drove all the way from Chapel Hill up to Brevard and uh, had an interview with the dean and went back to Chapel Hill, not knowing anything. And they called and said, uh, you're hired. So that's how I got in. And you were there for what, 40? 40 years, yes. Years. Yeah, I was, I you know, I was out a few times for sabbatical and things like that. Now, there, okay, you got a job there, but mm -hmm. working as, in, in what capacity in music? I know in music. Well, actually, I was replacing someone that they had let go in the spring, and I had to teach sight singing and ear training. <laughs> Right. So the blind person was teaching sight singing. And uh, <laughs> the interesting thing was that, of course, I had to memorize all of that. And that became challenging, of course. Fortunately, my wife at the time was also a music major. And so she could play these things for me and then I can memorize them. So that's uh, when I started teaching. And, of course, piano and voice along with the sight singing ear training. And yeah. then a couple, a couple years later, then I got into the choral conducting. And along the way, one of the professors at the college was also the conductor of the Asheville Symphony. And he heard that I played the violin. So he said, well, you can play in the Asheville Symphony. So then I had to memorize all of those parts. So, uh, And you had to maybe write them out if they weren't mainstream classical music also, well, right? They, they usually, uh, or play our them. conductor picked out, I guess, the what you might say, the top 40. You know, the Schubert and whatever, you know, with Beethoven and so forth, so... Uh, yeah. Those things, I, those things, you could find recordings of, and so I just, fortunately, I was playing first violin, so uh, well, that now, was easy to hear. When you were doing choral things, we talked about you writing all of that and getting somebody to play it for you, and and all of that. And then, what year was it when you got the programs that we all? Uh, 
Sibelius, the the sequencing program oh, that, that yes. Uh, what year was that? I guess it was what maybe eighty. Um, I guess maybe ninety four, ninety five, somewhere along in there. And it was uh, not when we came to Greenville, huh? Yes. Mm-hmm. And remember, Pinto was the one who introduced that called Sibelius speaking. Yes. And I immediately brought, bought the program. I never forget, he was at a convention, and I was going through the uh, uh, exhibit hall, and there he was sitting, demonstrating this particular program and how to do it. And I sat down, and he said, well, do this and do that, and play a tune and see what happens. And I did. And I started crying because <laughs> it was something that <laughs> I had been looking for for years, you know, a, a way to write down my music and have it come out in print. Yeah, it's a monumental experience to have It was, that. it really was. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, I know that for years you were with us and Friends in Art and also in the teachers group, and but then... You were a mentor for what? American Foundation? Yes, I've heard about this mentor program, and so I volunteered to be a mentor. And I uh, had several people call me. Uh, actually, one school called me. Um, it was uh, the University of New Mexico called and asked me to come out and discuss with them how they could assist a blind student in music. And that was through the AFB, American Foundation, and other people called just to talk on the phone about how they should approach faculty, how they should approach the music, how they should work. And I tried to advise them. Well, it was through that program that you got interested in the material that led you to a book that you wrote. Tell us about that. Well, actually, what happened was, uh, I'm sure you probably know Judy Dixon, uh, the Library of Congress. She was writing a book, putting together a book called Braille into the New Millennium. Of course, that was uh, around uh, 1998, 99, so that it would come out Two thousand, and she asked me to do the music section on it, uh, the music chapter, which I did, and I had it written up mostly. And so I decided that maybe I had exhausted every source of historical and uh, any kind of uh, uh, musical aspect of Braille. And uh, then I thought, well, uh, there's the American Printing House, and surely they might have something else that I might be able to add to this chapter. So I persuaded a fellow faculty member to take a detour when we were going up to Cincinnati uh, to take a detour over to Louisville. And so I could check out what the sources might be there. And I found out when I went there that there was a museum in the building. So I went to the museum, and Anne, who was the secretary and part of the staff there, uh, said that I do have something that you might be interested in. And so she went over to this glass case, opened it up, and brought this book out. 
And it was this book, and it had uh, four composers listed there. One of them was Gabriel Gautier, that I knew in my research had been the roommate of Louis Braille at the School for the Blind. And I thought, gee, this is quite a find to find music by this particular person. And looking at it more closely, it was published in 1863, not too long after Louis Braille invented the system. Uh, it may have been one of the first of the books that, and music that was published. As far as I know, it is. And so I thought, well, this would be a fascinating thing to transcribe this music, since I have Sibelius, uh, transcribe it into print and see if someone will publish it. And uh, fortunately, after working at this, I thought it would only take a couple of weeks, you know, for me to transcribe that into the Sibelius. Oh. Well, <laughs> that sounds optimistic. <laughs> yeah. Ten years later, <laughs> it was published. So AR Editions was very gracious, and I had a wonderful editor, Esther DeLakes, and she uh, assisted me in editing and working it out as far as uh, making sure that it all looked good and appeared good. And this AR Editions, you probably don't know too much about it. It is really the premier publisher of historic music. So I found that out. Uh, I found out about them, actually, by writing a person in Germany, and he suggested I contact this person in Wisconsin. So that's how it came about. Well, so now it's available in print. Is it available otherwise? Yes, it's available in Braille at the Library of Congress. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, like, we could just, I, what, I guess, go to the music section. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and the, yeah. And, and uh, it's in four volumes. It's in four volumes. Actually, the book itself is in four parts. The first part is mainly the music of Gabriel Gautier. And then uh, the other has a mixture of... Uh, of Guit is one of the composers, and Paul, P-A-U-L, or Paul in French, I suppose, and Harry, H-E-Acute-R-Y. Those are the four composers, all of them blind, all taught at the School for the Blind, and went there as students in Paris. Wow. You know, <laughs> to find a way to contain any of these areas of interest of yours is... Uh, fascinating thing but i want to go back now was it in the capacity as a choral director that you went uh i have entered some international competitions and won some awards was that well actually that was with my music but with uh, the, the things that you composed yes right which ones well there was a choral piece that won a competition in london it was just called Noel. They wanted a Christmas piece, and so I wrote this. And uh, then the Second Symphony won a prize in Prague, and it was played there. I had actually won second prize, uh, I guess it was four years before that, with a brass piece that I wrote. Well, are any of these compositions of yours available on, I don't know, CD or 
something well, like that? Well, I have them all recorded, and I could, of course, put them on a CD for anybody who would like to have them. So there are no commercial copies of my music. Ah, but you won international awards for them. Yes, yes, but they were <laughs> uh, actually, I, I guess they were in uh, competitions of blind composers. So, uh -huh. so as far as conducting, all of your conducting has pretty much been with conducting sighted choruses, right? That's right, yes. Was mm -hmm. there a little bit of a learning curve there to communicate with them? Well, I don't know. I think that a good musician, I think, can communicate for the most part with blind or sighted people. <laughs> yeah, conducting is a communication to not It is, yeah, and you have to express yourself. You can verbally express how you want the music, and then you can express that with your hands and body language. And yeah. I was able to do that. Yeah. Wow. You know, well, something else that I've also dabbled in back when electronic music was uh, going full swing, I uh, took several courses in computer music and then started a electronic lab here at the college to uh, create music, you know, on tape and with uh, synthesizers, the primitive type synthesizer. Things of that like sort. PDQ bot revisited. Yes, that that sort of thing, right? And uh, I, I taught several courses in that. I also cool. taught uh, piano tuning. <laughs> as uh, oh, you taught it in the, yes, at the college. At the college, yeah. Several students learned to tune pianos. Yeah. Uh, whether they continued with that, I don't know. But it was a course here, a credit course. It's a valuable skill, and even if yes. you didn't want to do it to make a living, if you were going to be a pianist, it could serve you. Indeed, and these were music students who wanted to study. And yeah. also I taught violin and cello and uh, a few other things like that in theory along the way. Well, see, and incidentally. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I never um, forget, I had a cello student. Uh, one summer, she wanted to study. She was up here for the summer in the mountains from Charleston, and she wanted to play in the Charleston Symphony, and she thought, well, one summer should do it. And her name was Mrs. Pringle of the Pringle Potato Chip oh, yeah. person. Anyway. Well, all right. It's rather interesting. <laughs> so go... Go fund you a symphony or something. Huh? Oh, I know. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hi, Harvey and Nancy. This is Annie Trapetta. So I was wondering if we could move into some Q&A because oh, sure. I'm fascinated and I want to ask you some questions. Oh, yeah. But I'll see okay. if I can answer them. All right. Um, I mean, there's someone with their hand raised, and I will get to them. But I wanted to ask you very specifically, uh, what, what, in, what inspires you? Who were your mentors uh, musically? Well, I suppose originally my sister was a pianist, and my brother also played. He played the trombone. 
He was a great uh, lover of uh, Glenn Miller's music. And so early along, I had two records, only two records. One was uh, Debussy, Afternoon of Fawn, and Glenn Miller's Blue Champagne. And at three years old, this is what I listened to. <laughs> but uh, they, uh, my brother said, uh, Sonny has to study at least three years of piano before he quits. So anyway, my brother and sister were really my mentors and, and I guess what I followed. And then I had some wonderful teachers, Lucille Harris, uh, Sawyer Harris, at the School for the Blind, was an excellent teacher. She took me around to various competitions and concerts, and she was just an excellent teacher, one that uh, really was into promoting and letting the students learn about music. So that, I guess, would be the main people. Thank you. Um, I'm going to lower the hand for Musi Allard. Okay. You, you can feel free to ask your question. When you said electronic music, that fascinates me because is that the, have you ever heard the term Autobahn from the German electronic music? Oh, yes, yes. Well, uh, I heard it a long time ago and I just think it's fascinating music. And uh, Yeah, it was that type of thing that we did in the lab. Uh, right. Okay. Yes. And kids came up with some very interesting and fascinating music. And uh, one student recorded hitting the strings of a piano with a drumstick oh. <laughs> and, and then electronically slowing down the tape and speeding it up and things like that. You can create all kinds of sounds. That's wild. I know. That's wild yes. stuff. But did, okay. I just So you've done everything from classical to jazz to... Blues to electronics. Well, electronics, anyway, yeah. And uh, classical, mostly, yeah. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be Thank quiet you. now. I'll okay. listen. Okay. Thank you. Uh, uh, the next person is with the area code 573, whoever that is. Yeah, you can this, ask your question. This is wonderful to hear you. And I, you know, I sort of heard bits and pieces of your life, but it's wonderful to hear sort of the entire story. I am really interested in your compositional journey. Um, can you talk about what got you interested in composing and sort of how you got your ideas converted into print notation and how you got your stuff performed? And I hope that you do send me at least some of your stuff. You can just send them as individual files. And I also hope that maybe you send something for the showcase. I think it would be fascinating to hear some of you, you know, some of you might maybe one of your shorter pieces uh, as part of our showcase. Yeah, I'm. I'm sending actually uh, a piece, well, actually it's three pieces, settings of, I call them Sandberg songs, they're Sandberg poems, and it's for a small ensemble and voice. In the ensemble there's harp, horn, clarinet, and violin, and uh, without a harp, uh, it was transcribed for piano, so the piano is doing the harp part in the, this particular recording, and I'm doing the vocal part. And he's sending it to us for the showcase. Oh, excellent. Yes, yes. Oh, thank you. Um, Michael hey, you Byington, you, um, has, yeah. I'm going to lower Michael's hand for the next question. 
you guys can just. Uh, I just wanted to. I, I, I appreciate that. I'm sort of curious to know about your composition journey. I mean, how, how did you get interested? Oh. Or how did you get? You know, how did you get? You know, moving moving in that direction. How did you get your stuff from you know from braille to print, for example, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, that was. Um, I don't know. It was a long journey, actually. When I was uh, early along, I was creating pieces on the piano, fun pieces, you know, when I was three, uh, <laughs> things like storms on the piano, you could create uh, things of that sort. And uh, then on, uh, I guess, throughout, I was always trying to create things. I wrote some music when I was in high school, and I got picked out the prettiest girl to transcribe it for me. Of course. <laughs> 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 and she also was rich so <laughs> but uh, um, then uh, I had to call on people you know to transcribe my music basically did you have like a like a whole list of folks like some of them did better with with certain types certain pieces than others and well I, I did and in college of course uh, I tried to get someone in the class particularly for theory uh that was always a problem <laughs> so i usually tried to find someone in the class to uh, write the music out for me and of course i had uh, help from the state and i had reader service so they got paid so have you done more you know, of your compositions since you've had sibelius and ways that you could do your own oh indeed yes uh, I just finished the fourth piano sonata, for example, and I wrote uh, recently five violin sonatas. Uh, and using Sibelius, I wrote also 12 sonatinas for all of the 12 uh, major keys, anyway. I haven't started on the minor keys yet. <laughs> um, so all of those things I did, you know, with Sibelius, and it was this... Uh, Sibelius, of course, that allowed me to publish the book. Yes. Yep. Thanks. Sure. And I studied composition at Indiana University. Oh, okay. Um, um, I mean, there were two, I have two people that I've lowered their hands, Michael Byington and then Caller One. I don't know who Caller One is, well, this um, but is I just Michael. lowered, okay, Michael, go for it. And then uh, whoever Caller One was, you can go after Michael. Well, Harvey, it's good to hear yes. your voice again, and uh, uh -huh. I want to uh, say to the people who are here that I'm one of 15 lucky souls uh, who got to hear uh, a piece that uh, Harvey had uh, brought back to life from Gautier, and I, I don't think that we can thank him enough for having brought back to life. Uh, music of significant blind composers that would have absolutely been lost. And it was his dual knowledge of music and braille and his uh, keen mind for history that made all of that possible. To that end, my question, Harvey, uh, I am not quite sure how to approach this. I, You confided uh, to me a couple of years ago that you are now in your 80s and uh, you're the youngest person of octogenaric uh, status that I know anywhere. <laughs> but just thinking 20, 30, 40 years into the future, will Brevard College have 
uh, a Harvey Miller archive or will the University of North Carolina or anyone, the recordings that you have of your uh, materials that you've done and that maybe haven't been translated yet, everything you've done, uh, there needs to be a, uh, a comprehensive Dr. Miller archive somewhere. And I wondered if there are any plans uh, in the mix, I would assume, at uh, Rebar at Rebar College to uh, make that happen? Well, not so far. I have all of my music right behind me here in two huge uh, file cabinets. <laughs> and so it, it will stay there probably until at least next year. <laughs> I, I must encourage you to make certain that your music and your work and your historical research lives on and on and on because you have provided a tremendous gift both to the uh, world of blindness and to the world of music and you have restored things that would have absolutely been lost were it not for you so thank you sir well thank you okay um whoever has a question please just uh, say your name and step up hi it's mike mandel hey mike uh, hi how are you harvey fine fine uh, oh it's, it's great to just hear you speak for a while my friend it's terrific, and I have a, more than one question, if that's okay. First of all, uh, one year I, I heard a, a partial of a string quartet you did, and didn't that win an award? Well, it I guess uh, in North Carolina it did, uh, in that it was selected as a performance at University of Chapel Hill. Uh -huh. Along with another piece, uh, actually it was a, called Concertina for Eight. Uh, it had uh, three strings, three woodwinds, keyboard, uh, which included piano, harpsichord, and celeste, and percussion. Uh -huh. uh, so anyway, that uh, wound up being a concertina for nine because the percussionist decided that he couldn't do it all by himself. <laughs> uh, when you composed the string quartet, was, was that a pre-Sibelius uh, composition, or did you write it on um, Sibelius? Let's see. It was pre-Sibelius, actually. Yes. Uh -huh. And uh, I, my wife at the time uh, transcribed it. it. It was a wonderful piece. Everything that I heard was, you know, was magnificent. It, uh, I was kind of thinking of our talk when I heard it. Oh um, yes, okay. <laughs> I mean, um, who are who you know, are I, some I, of the? I, I studied yeah, with I studied with uh, a student of Hindemith, so that it's a marvelous string quartet. Everybody, I, I just heard fragments, and I was I was so impressed with it. I hope that uh, we have an opportunity to hear it in its entirety uh, sometime. Well, and, thank you. Yeah, and also in Sibelius, can you now um, can you now do bowing marks and and um, yeah, uh, I guess that's what fingering, I want to Fingering, fingering, and bowing. Fingerings, bowing marks. Can you do all those in Sibelius? Yes, yes. That's magnificent. My my. And one more. Uh, the uh, you said you had a primitive electronic. Uh, set up. Was that, uh, did you have Bukla? 
synthesizers at that point? Um, yes, actually. Um, actually, uh, someone made some uh, s small synthesizers for the lab. Uh, uh -huh. a, a student put it together. And we had uh, two uh, tape decks, you know, reel-to-reel. Also, you're doing concrete? Yes, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh, oh, we had other devices, uh, some uh, reverb, things of that sort. I can't remember all the stuff that we had at that time. And then we when got into computer music, so. Oh, yes. When you were at Indiana, did you study with the Sunakis? Uh, he was there. Um, actually, uh, Boulez also was there, but oh. uh, it was just for... Uh, uh, you know, master classes and things of that sort. Oh, gotcha. Oh, thank you, Harvey. Sure. This is Roger Peterson. Yes. Uh, Harvey, um, I have another friend who is somewhat musical that went to that blind school, and I'm curious to know whether you had any overlap with Ronnie Millsap. I had some. Um, he was so small, and so... Uh, he told me they threw him out of the music department because he wanted to play rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, well, I, you see, I was not there at that time. <laughs> uh, he's younger he, than he's you. He's about eight years younger than me, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, he was a teeny tiny tot. I, he probably was in the orchestra with me at the time. I don't know. Uh, he uh, was, uh, I guess... Take under taken under the his the violin teacher's wing, and uh, he was very kind to Ronnie apparently, and so he thought very highly of uh, uh, Mr. Greaves. Wallace Greaves was his name. Mm -hmm. I, I read Ronnie's uh, biography, and I, I know he talked uh, had several paragraphs about Wallace Greaves in there. Well, I used to be a frequent conversation, have frequent conversations with him when I worked at uh, Telesensory. <laughs> oh, really? Uh-huh. Because he was using the technology, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm how to do something, he'd say, hey, that's slick. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend who was good friends of his. So uh, this this guy was about four years younger than me, and then, he sort of befriended Ronnie, and uh, he was a very fine musician. Uh, this friend of mine, uh, he played with, uh, I, you probably know, um, Briar Hoppers, maybe <laughs> out of Charlotte, uh, anyway. Hey, Harvey? Yes. This is Peter Also, again. If you don't mind, I have another question or two for you. Sure. Uh, the first has to do with your cool conducting. Um, as one who has sung in quite a few choruses, I'm really fascinated by the whole uh, issue of learning the sort of hand signals that helps, uh, as I call them, light-dependent people follow you. Uh, yes. How did you learn that, and how did you sort of adjust? Um, you know, it's, I think it's a little bit different. I mean, obviously, the you know having the same musicianship is important, no matter which kind of group you're working with. But how did you learn those hand signals, and sort of how did you develop those skills to work with uh, with to work with with sighted people? Well, uh, you know, I learned the basic things in college. Uh, we had a very sort of uh, elementary type of conducting course. It was conducting and orchestration all taught in one semester at Chapel Hill. And uh, 
so I had the basic uh, motions, I guess you would say, but then uh, you had to develop the skills of communicating that to a choral group. And uh, I guess it was just a sort of a natural thing that came over the, over the, uh, the period of starting out with the children's choir. That was a challenge, of course. Uh, working with children always is a challenge and just disciplining. But anyway, uh, the college kids were just about as bad sometimes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's true. But uh, that's, no, yeah, but, but, it just sort of ahead. came naturally after uh, so many years of doing it, I guess. And what was, what was some of your repertoire that you did? I know you mentioned Handel's Messiah. Uh, what else? What other kind of stuff did you do? Oh, mainly anthems. I I did. Uh, well, some of the major works, uh, Rejoice in the Lamb, uh, mm. Benjamin oh, yeah. Britten. Uh, I did uh, Durfle Requiem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, uh, I think I had the flu when I was conducting that. I, I, I don't remember much about it. Uh, <laughs> but That's a uh, hard piece to conduct. <laughs> no. It's uh, seriously, it's a hard piece. It's a hard piece to sing. Well, some of those, you know, are very challenging because you have, to, uh, for example, the Dorfle had uh, multiple uh, uh, tempo changes and yep. also meter changes throughout. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, smaller works that, uh, I, I guess, you know, Bach chorales, things of that sort, uh, anthems that would be uh, sort of church anthems. When you were talking about Working with that children's choir, which I surmised was your first foray, no pun intended, yeah. into uh, <laughs> into conducting. How were you in college then, or when? When? Yeah, no, you know? I was. Uh, that was after I came here to teach at Brevard. Oh, you were college. at Brevard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the chair. That was when the chairman said, "You do this, and you did uh-huh. it." Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, Harvey, help me out with one more thing. I'm really curious about. So, yeah. when he did a piece like like the for, uh, not the foray, the um, the requiem you mentioned, um, mm-hmm. I've sung that piece twice actually. Um, uh, you know, how did you prep? In other words, I don't, was that score available in Braille at, at the time? It, no, uh, no, it, was. it wasn't. I had to do it uh, by rote, uh, just learning it from the recording, and uh, I. I can't remember whether I had some of it in Braille or whether I just made notes. I think I just made some notes in Braille so I could, uh, you know, uh, say direct. If we had to work on a particular passage, I had to know the letter, uh, you know, letter A or letter C, uh, where to start, things of that sort. So I made notes of that sort. And, and um, a totally different question for you, mm-hmm. um, and thank you. That's actually really interesting and, and, and helpful for me. Um, we are going into a, a time where there's more technology, and to be very frank, I'm not aware. I mean, most folks who I know who are musicians who are blind do not read Braille. And I'm curious what your reaction is to that. Um, you know, uh, you know, Braille seems becoming less and less important, which I, th- mm-hmm. I think is unfortunate. What is your take about music Braille and using it or not using it and learning it or not learning it, you know, as we get to a sort of a new, a new age, if you will? Well, I find that uh, I have to work with Braille. 
I write all my music down in Braille first, and then I transcribe it to Sibelius or, you know, to the computer. Uh, and he was saying a minute ago that he had read the Braille with one hand and conduct with the other hand. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that worked. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think so, too, but, I mean, it's impressive yeah. to me. <laughs> okay. It is impressive. <laughs> but, um, you know, the uh, Braille music, to me, uh, is necessary for a blind person. Uh, I was, for example, I've been working on a uh, piece that I bought from, I guess, uh, maybe the uh, RNIB, perhaps. Uh, anyway, it's a, a Papillon or Schumann. Well, you know, uh, you can sit down and learn music by rote, it, you know, just listening to the recording, but whether you get all the... the the uh, really get it accurate, uh, get all of the nuance that the composer wanted to, to display in the music. You wouldn't get that just by listening to something and playing it. Yeah. So, no, anyway, I, 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 yeah, no. I continue reading music and writing yeah. it in Braille. Um, Harvey, this That's is Annie really Chapetta again. Um, yes. Sorry, Peter, I stepped on you. Um, I, I'm curious to know. Um, you've had, a, you know, an extremely distinguished career. You've, you've been able to follow the history of music in terms of its evolution. Uh, and I, I, would, I would love to hear your thoughts on um, music, you know, in the modern age. You know, where do you think it's going to go? Um, what are your thoughts about, like, analog and, and our shift into digital? Um, and if that's going to affect the um, spontaneity and, and, and the uniqueness of recorded music. I'm really curious about your thoughts about that. Well, I don't think it will uh, affect the creativity of a person by having some Here. new wow. device that they can use. Uh, I think, for example, Charles Glass, who has lots of repetition, certainly his music is probably enhanced greatly by having a computer that will repeat over and over the same thing uh, with slight variations that come up. But I'm sure that uh, a lot of uh, music of that sort, uh, John Adams and Charles Glass, uh, could be affected and is affected by computer world. But uh, as far as evolution, as far as the music is concerned, I think a composer will still continue writing music out of his head the way he would like for it to sound and not uh, depend on the uh, mechanical devices so much. Yeah. Um, I have another question. <laughs> mm -hmm. oh um, who, who are the composers you listen to? Who do you admire in the music world? Oh, uh, rarely uh, I, I listen to uh, uh, Sirius XM. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Whatever they That's play. Okay. <laughs> I think we all listen to something like <laughs> But uh, the composers I like really, uh, I like Mahler, I like Hindemith, I, I like hmm. German composers, Austrian composers. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, my music is, uh, has a tendency towards being romantic in style. Uh, is that what draws you to them in terms of their I style? I think so, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. 
And uh, I, I like the uh, idea of, of having things worked out technically as well as musically. Uh, uh, what do you mean I, by that? Like, can you expand well, on that? Uh, for example, Hindemith had a, a style, a, a particular method of doing counterpoint, and I studied for a whole year his method of counterpoint, and it was fascinating because uh, it, I don't want to get into any technical details, but it was a style that uh, can be romantic, can be uh, uh, almost anything. Uh, you know, it could be uh, uh, almost uh, atonal character. Interesting. Very interesting. Is there anything you don't like musically? No, I don't, haven't come across anything. Uh, I'm even beginning to like country music. <laughs> My goodness, yes. <laughs> I know. I, you know, I'm of the mind that our musical tastes um, evolve as much as music does over time. And, and the things that we might not have liked, especially me, um, I, I used to not really be very, uh, I didn't like opera. And mm -hmm. now I love it. And I find it so, um, just so pleasing uh, to me. Yeah. And, you know, so, so I think, I think we, we gain appreciation as we grow. Well, I know that growing up, I always listened to the opera on Saturday afternoon. Mm -hmm. So that was probably my first love. And that's why I started singing so early. Yeah. I was singing those tunes. <laughs> Do you whistle? Oh, I whistle, yes. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, is there anything else you would like us to know, Harvey? I mean, talking to you t t today is just ama amazing for me. Uh, well, no, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I've had some wonderful people along the way who assisted me. Uh, this David Kirby, for example, who uh, went with me and found this book in St. Louis, I mean, in Louisville. And uh, he was the one who first sort of encouraged me to go back and do something about that book. And uh, I had wonderful faculty members here at the college who have assisted me and pushed me and <laughs> urged me on that uh, yeah. in my life has, I think, have been very helpful. And particularly, my wife, ex-wife now, was my biggest mm -hmm. fan. And ever since uh, she was 13 years old, that's when we met. I was 16, she was 13. And uh, she was always encouraging and pushing me along, I guess you would say. Yes. Yes, we do need that. We don't live in bubbles, right? No, we don't. No, we don't. Yes. How how much does your spiritual life influence your 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 composing and and your musical life? Well, I have written a lot of anthems and pieces uh, uh, using psalms and things of that sort. And I was a choir master at uh, a uh, an Episcopal church <laughs> in the next town over for several years. And I had to write music almost every Sunday of some sort. Oh, okay. For that. For that service, I wrote pieces for bells and uh, anthems mm -hmm. for the choir. and Just before Sibelius? Yes, it was all before <laughs> Sibelius, unfortunately. Wow. <laughs> for bells? Just yeah, for <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, used to, I used to write that 
uh, I would dictate it to my wife. Uh, okay. A friend was driving the car, and we'd be driving over to the next town before the service, and I would dictate uh, something for her to use as an interlude or something of that sort. So. Oh, she was the... Harvey, I, I was the organist. I should be organist? I'm sorry. Oh, organist? Yes. She was organist. Oh, she was the organist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, Peter. Harvey, I'm assuming you're talking about handbells. I'm no, sorry, no. Annie. I, um, no, go ahead. I assume you were talking about handbells, Harvey? Yes. Yeah, yeah no, that, those, are, those are really interesting, interesting things to write for. Oh, they um, are. And, they're they're uh, not easy, but... No. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, have you done some, Peter? The, for the I have. Uh-huh. I have. Um, and uh, uh, in fact, my only published classical piece is a handbell piece. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but um, yeah, uh, it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful uh, uh, instrument, if you will, to write for. But you have to know what you're doing. And you have to, I mean, in my case, I had a good conductor who could, who, you know, sort of help me think through how to write for that, you know, medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your harp, your your symphonies and your and your string quartet and all of that, are they published, Harvey? No, they're not. That's no. what I thought you were telling us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I thought I understood. They're all in print, of course. Yeah. And uh, folks have played them. But, uh, right. And I did record most of them. So. Yeah. So wow. Jason, if you're if you're around. Do we have enough material from Mr. Miller? Oh, absolutely. For the, for the, for the, <laughs> I thought so. Yeah. Sorry, we appreciate it so much. Oh, oh, okay. Mike, okay. Harvey, do you have a Dropbox or an, uh, 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 an address where we can go listen to some of your stuff? I don't. I could probably. Uh, I'd used Dropbox when I was working on this book. And I could probably put some things into there. So uh, let me see if I can do that. He had said that he would get Jason some some CDs, Mike, to share with us. But 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 we hadn't but we hadn't explored Dropbox since he didn't have that. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. I have uh, probably thirty or forty CDs with various. My goodness, that's. So that's like that's like Bobby. me me that's like me the writer saying I have about thirty or forty manuscripts. Well, <laughs> and, and, and he said this, that, that those of us that wanted to have uh, copies uh, of it. Unfortunately, I have even more manuscripts. That, you know, that, <laughs> uh, creativity. Well, I I think this is fascinating, and I'm just so thrilled you came on and did this, Harvey, and. Um, uh, I, for one, will be looking forward to your Dropbox, or I might even send you an email and ask you to send me some of your stuff. I'm, I'm really interested. Okay. So, um, right. you know. Yeah. Uh, and we thank you so much yes, for Harvey, thank talking you for with your us time. for this, you know, being a guest on our, in our art parlor. Well, I hope it was interesting for folks. Oh, I oh yes. And so. we, yes. we, will, uh, we yeah. will definitely let you know when we're ready to... Um, to put it up on ACB radio. So okay, you can share it with good. your friends and family. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Harvey. This was great. Oh, sure. Sure. Hey, yep. right, everybody. Actually, I thank you so much. This is a do. Thanks, Harvey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Oh, indeed. <laughs> thank you, Harvey. Thank you so good much. Good to hear you, Mike. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Art 
Parlor is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Radio. It airs beginning every Saturday at 8 p.m. on ACB Radio Mainstream. To listen and for a full schedule, go to www.acbradio.org mainstream. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at acbradio.org and please feel free to check out our website www.friendsinart.com Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month. Thank you.